Jeremiah Lanfear was a 19th century missionary, and God put on his heart to have a prayer meeting. And so in response to God, he was faithful and obedient, and he planned a Wednesday at 12 p.m., one hour prayer meeting on September 23rd, 1857. He invited past flyers out and wanted to gather businessmen uh, from the community to come and pray. Well, 12 o'clock came on Wednesday and nobody was here. 12.15, still nobody. By 12.30, one person came, and by the end of the hour, there were a total of six people that prayed. They weren't discouraged. They set a date for the next week, and 20 people came and prayed. The next week, 40 people came and prayed. They needed a bigger room. And soon after that, the stock market crashed, and people were desperate. And what happens when people are desperate? They need more God, right? So Jeremiah says, you know what? We're going to change this weekly prayer gathering to a daily prayer gathering. And so daily they would pray, and sometimes Fulton Street Square would have up to 3,000 people who would participate in the prayer meetings. And it is estimated that about 1 million people got saved that year. It's known as a prayer uh, revival. God used one man, caught the heart and, and, and the vision of transformation used one man to stir revival. King Josiah became king at age eight, and he started following after God at age 16. And at age 26, we see he has this incredible encounter with God, and uh, transformation is spurred on and happens. A one person can change not just their own life or their family's life, but a generation to come of people. One uh, person. I, I want to encourage you here. If you are a student, actually, a lot of our students attend in the gym at 1030, but if you're here, a middle school or high school student, raise your hand. Okay, we got quite a few. Uh, let, let me just encourage you. You can make an unbelievable transformational impact on not just your own life, not just your class, not just your school, but a community. You can have an impact. Now, when I was your age and someone on a platform said something very similar, I would kind of internally go, yeah, right. What, what difference can one person make? I think of graduation speeches, right? And I look back at my life and I see a lot of difference that I made. I, I look back, I have this memory of, of being uh, nine years old. I got saved at age seven and at nine years old, I'm in, the, I'm in my basement in Duluth, Minnesota and Sean DeShane is over. Uh, Sean DeShane's parents were alcoholics, they were abusive and him and I are playing Nintendo 64, GoldenEye and we pause and I say, can I tell you about Jesus? And I shared Christ with him and he got saved. Sean DeShane, I just, I don't even know what he's doing today but I pray that God still has a hold of his life and I can look back at other moments in my life where I made a huge difference but I also look, I look back and I'm like, man, if I grasped the vision of, of the impact I could have had, it could have been way bigger. There were missed opportunities. You as a student can make an unbelievable difference. Look at King Josiah as an example for you. Let God ignite transformation in your life. Last week, we focused on uh, the importance of removing idols. It's not enough to just confess. We have to change our mind about these idols, and we have to remove them from our lives. And I just want to say, some of you are struggling uh, this week. You uh, pinned an idol to this cross. It was beautiful. It was beautiful watching people come up uh, last Sunday and pinning these idols to the cross. I just believe that honored uh, God. He was so pleased with our church. And so much uh, idols, they were pinned, but maybe some of you have struggled. You've either fallen back into idolatry 
or you're wrestling and you feel weak, I just want to encourage you. I've said this before and I'll say it again. The mere wrestling with sin is evidence that God lives inside of you. You are not at peace with your idols. You are waging war against them. That tension that you feel, be encouraged that God's spirit is actively working in your life and you can't do it alone. So don't try to do it alone. Allow God's people to come around you. You need to publicly confess so you will be healed as James says. We need to come around you to help you and to fill that idol with a greater idol. You can't just leave your own soul empty as you remove the idols uh, from it. It's not enough to just confess. Uh, we, We read about this in Matthew chapter 12. Verses 43, Jesus is speaking of a person who's been freed from an unclean spirit, which is a demon. He, he's free that he, it's described, his, his soul is described as a house. And it says the house was cleaned up, meaning all the, the demon was gone and the influence of the demon was gone. But that person doesn't fill it with anything. And so what the demon does is gets seven other evil spirits and comes back and eight times stronger than before uh, captures that person. And it's because that person never actually uh, brought in God's word, God's spiritual practices uh, to help them grow. You have to replace the bad uh, with good. Josiah couldn't just take down idols and be done. The people would fall back into idolatry as they had so often. He needed to now replace it with true worship of God. He needed to restore true worship. Our main idea today is replacing idolatry with true worship leads to revival. Replacing idolatry with true worship leads to revival. We're going to be in 2 Kings chapter 23. So if you turn there with me, we're going to be in verses 1 through 3. We're going to see Josiah restore true worship through a covenant with God and a Passover celebration. If you're able to stand, would you please stand as we honor God's word this morning? This is the word of the Lord, starting with verse 1, chapter 23. Then the king sent, and all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem were gathered to him. And the king went up to the house of the Lord, and with him all the men of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and the priests and the prophets, all the people, both small and great. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood by the pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in this book and all the people joined in the covenant. Let's pray. God, what a beautiful example we have. God, as, as we study your word, uh, would it point to Christ? Would it point to the Savior that all of us need? Father, would we find hope as a church family this morning? We love you, God. You are the hero. You are the reason why we gather. Uh, make me small. Make yourself great. I pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen, amen. You can be seated. Are you excited to study God's word? Isn't this an amazing opportunity? We have. Let's approach this with joy. And what we see in this text is an unbelievable scene. And I want to give you a picture so you can have an idea of what's happening. All the people are gathered. It says both great and small. They're all gathered to hear what the king has to say. And what does he say? In verse 2, he read all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. Who knows how long it had been since people heard scripture, 
Remember, the book of the law was found in the temple as Josiah was restoring it. The people didn't probably know the word of God, and here he is reading it and proclaiming it to all the people. He wanted to read it himself. I find that interesting. That's what the text says. The king read it. It's like he has this encounter with God as, as Shaphan read the, the holy word to him, and he, and he tears his clothes, and he responds with humility and repentance, and he says, I want, I want my people to encounter and see this God that I have met. He's directing people to God's word. Our first point this morning is replace idolatry with the word of God replace idolatry with the word of God. And we touched on this a lot in week one, the importance of scripture, the importance of hearing from God, being guided by truth, that, that this is actually living and active, meaning the Bible speaks into culture today. It speaks into your heart today. There is nothing that scripture can't speak into. It's not outdated. It's not old. It transcends that. It is God's word. It's our first value at Fox Valley Church, the preeminence of God's word. Truth starts here because this is the primary way that God speaks to you and me today the primary way. And so we infuse scripture in our services. Almost every worship song we sing, you'll you'll see scripture. At some point on the screen, we pick songs that are rooted in scripture. We read a call to worship and we read scripture. We preach from God's word. Kids in Journeyland hear from God's word. They read God's word. You want an encounter with God? Read your Bible. Open up your Bible. And after Josiah reads God's word, the text says he made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord, to keep his commandments with all his heart and his soul. And all the people joined in. A covenant is kind of like what we would call a contract today. Each covenant would establish the basis of the relationship, conditions for that relationship, and then consequences and promises depending on if they were met or unmet. It's like this serious uh, commitment. And Josiah does it in front of everyone. Just think about the accountability we're talking about here. He stands before all of Jerusalem and Judah saying, here's what I'm going to do before God. There's accountability. If you don't see it happening, call me out on it. And then all the people joined in. It doesn't say the king commanded them to join in. The people and the family of God naturally wanted to respond to God's word and commit to him. This kind of a mass commitment to the Lord is a special work of God's spirit. There's revival happening. Revival is happening as thousands upon thousands of people are gathered for Passover. And we're going to talk about that in just a little bit. But all these people are gathered and and they're responding to God's word. There are times throughout scripture that we read revival happening What comes to my mind first is Acts chapter 2, right? 3,000 people get saved at Pentecost, and then uh, their numbers were increasing daily. God was doing a special work in the 1700s, the Great Awakening. In the 1800s, that story of Jeremiah Lanfear, a, a prayer revival. These are times that have happened where God does a unique work of his spirit, a unique work, and we should pray that that happens to us in our community today. In fact, I think some of us need to repent for unbelief that God would want to or even can work in a powerful way in our community today. That as we as God's people responded to God's word and lived as the people he wanted us to be committing to him that this community could be transformed. My second point this morning is to replace idolatry with recommitment to God. With recommitment to God. Sometimes 
we come at a crossroads in our life and we have to stay, say, this is now where I want to go. For me, when I was 16 years old, this happened. Got saved at seven, was walking with the Lord, and then those eighth grade, ninth grade years hit. And I started to go off course some. And I felt convicted. And I was at a, at a youth retreat. And we were worshiping. And I, I wish I remembered the song, but I, I remember being on my knees saying, God, I'm turning from my idols or my sin, and I'm going to follow you. I now, I choose you again. It was this recommitment. And it was a powerful turning point in my life that I can look back at. And I got home that weekend, and I remember in, in Naperville at my parents' house, I, I was pacing outside their, their bedroom door. They, they went to bed super early because my dad got up early, so it's probably 8 o'clock. They're all in bed, and I'm outside their door, and I'm pacing back and forth like this, and, and probably for 30 minutes. I don't think that's an exaggeration. I'm like, I, I got to tell them what God's doing. No, 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 I'm going to just start crying. No, I got to tell them, like, God's doing something special. No, I'm going to be way too embarrassed. I don't want to do it. And finally, I summon the courage. I knock on their door. I come in, and I remember standing in front of their bed and in front of the TV, and I, I blocked the TV, and I said, God is doing something in my life and I remember getting on their bed and, and on my knees, and the three of us just um, held each other, and lots of tears came, and we prayed and just exalted in a living God. And I, I'm emotional now, even as I say it, because I'm thinking about my own kids and how I always want there to be this safe place that they can come to dad, whatever they're struggling with, and say, here's what is happening in my life. Here's what God's doing in my life. There are these times that we can commit, recommit to God, and choose a different path to live for what really matters. And what I want you to see here is this is clearly a work of God. When there's this mass commitment, there's revival happening, it is God doing it, but he uses man. He uses people. Isn't that beautiful? God doesn't have to use us, but he uses people. And in this story, he uses King Josiah's leadership, King Josiah's heart for God to stir an entire nation to commit to God. Don't underestimate the ability and the influence that you have in your life. So I want to ask a couple questions. One is, who are you discipling? Who are you leading spiritually? Who are you helping recommit to God? When you recommit to God, you're setting an example for all those around you, just like Josiah was. Who, who are you, who's being entrusted to you to have a spiritual impact? It is my job as a pastor to equip you to do the work of the ministry. Who are you discipling? We need to encourage one another to take a stand, to recommit, and have an impact on those around us. We can have incredible impact. And I just got to give a shout out to student ministry because uh, this past year, our high school boys, a few of them started gathering on Monday nights. In addition, in addition to church, in addition to, small, to youth group, they started gathering on Monday nights to read God's word and pray. Are you kidding me? High school boys, <laughs> they're gathering to read God's word and pray. And I could just share more stories about what God's doing through our students, through other people at Fox Valley. We're starting a sermon series next week on Daniel. I can't wait. Pastor Tom's gonna be bringing us into this new series next week. And how did Daniel become Daniel? Daniel, the arguably the most up, upright character in all of scripture. Try to find a fault of Daniel in the Bible. How did Daniel become Daniel? You know who was king when Daniel was born? Josiah. Daniel grew up 
as Josiah as king. And let me just speculate that maybe Daniel said, I want to live for what matters like my king lives for what matters. And somehow God uses Josiah's influence to impact a remnant of God's people that are taken captive into Babylon and somehow live for what matters resisting pagan idolatry. It's beautiful, amen? Amen. It's beautiful, God's plan, what he's doing to orchestrate all these things. Josiah raises a generation of people to follow after God. We're going to have an opportunity a little bit later to make a commitment. And and for some of you, this is exactly what you need in your life. You need to recommit. Uh, I've not been down a path that God's called me, and I, I want to change that today. We're going to give you the opportunity uh, to do that. I, I want to skip ahead and now read about Passover. If you're going to jump with me, go to uh, verse 21 and 23. We're still in chapter 23, but now we're jumping to verses 21 and 23. It says this, and the king commanded all the people, keep the Passover to the Lord your God, as it is written in this book of the covenant, for no such Passover had been kept since the days of the judges who judged Israel, or during all the days of the kings of Israel, or of the kings of Judah. But in the 18th year of King Josiah, this Passover was kept to the Lord in Jerusalem. We read that this is the greatest Passover a king had ever uh, celebrated, ever initiated, and Second Chronicles 35 gives us more details about this. For those unfamiliar, First and Second Kings was written by a different author and at a different time than First and Second Chronicles. They're detailing a lot of the same events, but they're written at different times and for different purposes. So we can read them sometimes and reference them, and it's very helpful to understand the story. So we're going to jump to Second Chronicles uh, chapter 35. Starting in verse 1, it'll be on your screen here. Josiah celebrated the Passover to the Lord in Jerusalem, and the Passover lamb was slaughtered on the 14th day of the first month. He appointed the priests to their duties and encouraged them in the service of the Lord's temple. He said to the Levites who instructed all Israel and who had been consecrated to the Lord, put the sacred ark in the temple that Solomon, son of David, king of Israel, built. It is not to be carried about on your shoulders. Now serve the Lord your God and his people Israel. Slaughter the Passover lambs, consecrate yourselves, and prepare the lambs for your fellow Israelites, doing what the Lord commanded through Moses. Josiah provided for all the lay people who were there a total of 30,000 lambs and goats for the Passover offerings, and also 3,000 cattle, all from the king's own possessions. All right, we find out the Ark of the Covenant had been removed from the temple by King Manasseh. He's the one that did it. And he put Asherah instead in the temple, right? False worship, really bad for the people. So what's Josiah doing? He's, he removed the bad, and now he's replacing it with true worship. The Ark of the Covenant, God's presence. Go think about that later. Look in some of the, the history of the Ark of the Covenant. It's, it's beautiful. And so he's, he's replacing good with bad, and then he's encouraging all the people right? He's encouraging the priests. He's assigning them tasks. This was a huge event. If you've ever, ever planned uh, a, a massive event, times that by like a hundred, and maybe you'll get an idea uh, of what's going on here. And so he's, he's initiating all these different tasks, and then he's donating. It says the king gave. He's donating 30,000 lambs and goats and 3,000 cattle. How many of you have donated a cow recently? Maybe you're not as generous as you think, right? He's donating all of these animals And it's significant because each family needed a representative lamb. Each family needed a lamb. Why? Let's remember the significance of Passover. It was supposed to be practiced annually to remind the Israelites of God's faithfulness 
and how he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt. And so hundreds of years ago, over 600 years ago from our story, the Israelites cry out to God for help to deliver them from slavery. And so God raises up Moses, right, who Moses has this encounter with God and and responds. And God sends 10 plagues against Egypt because Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he wouldn't let God's people go. And the last plague was pretty intense. It was the death of the firstborn son, the death of the firstborn child, excuse me. I think it was just child in general from each household. And God tells the Israelites the only way to escape this judgment is to sacrifice a lamb, kill a lamb, and put the blood of the lamb on the door. And God will pass over that house and they will not have to face judgment. You see the significance that it's foreshadowing that we needed a sacrificial lamb for God to pass over judgment upon us. Something like 1,400 years before Jesus came, I don't know the exact amount of years, but well over 1,000, Jesus is foreshadowing, or God is foreshadowing his plan in Christ for us. It's amazing. Scripture is amazing. And so partaking in Passover reminded the Israelites, it was so significant because it's, it's God, is, he's for you, he loves you, he can rescue you, he's better than all other gods, he works in power, and he has a plan to save all people who trust in him through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. And to neglect Passover meant that the Israelites probably forgot the redeeming work of God It's estimated to be about 70 years since Passover was done. 70 years. Imagine if, similar to today, if we did not gather publicly to worship to remember what God has done. This is essentially what Passover is. Gather, worship, remember what God has done, partaking in the Lord's Supper. Imagine if we didn't do that for 70 years. We would forget the work of God. An entire, multiple generations would forget the word of God, what God has done. And 2 Chronicles 35 goes on to describe the Passover in more details. It talks about singers and worship, sacrifice, the Feast of Unleavened Breads. It says that all the kids from Israel and Judah were together. Just this beautiful, a beautiful picture. We see corporate worship. We see corporate gathering of the Israelites, and, and they're worshiping God with remembrance, with thanksgiving. The third point today is to replace idolatry with corporate worship of God. One of the best highs that you can get is when we gather together, a spiritual high. God's people doing what God's people are supposed to do, to come and exalt in a living God, to read from his living word, to encourage one another, forgive one another, serve one another, to sing loudly, to shout, to weep with one another, all these different things that God gives, uh, a picture of, of worshiping him is one of the best ways to replace an idol. I love when we gather on Sunday mornings. This right now is a highlight of my week, gathering together where two or three are in my name, there I am. That's not just in the context of spiritual discipline, of church discipline, that's in the context of God works in power, his spirit works in power when his people gather And a critical teaching of how God wants us to gather, how he wants us to worship is in John chapter four. Many of you know this story. It's a Samaritan woman. She's at the well and Jesus boldly approaches her. And um, she's been living in adultery and, and she tries to distract Jesus from that fact. And so she asks him a question. 
She goes, uh, is worship supposed to take place on Mount Gerizim or in the temple of Jerusalem? And this is what Jesus says. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. As we think about true worship, God's giving us this picture of spirit and truth. Among other things, this is what worshiping in spirit means. Heartfelt devotion to God. To come with heartfelt devotion to God. No matter how liturgical, how repetitive, how fresh a worship environment is, you are supposed to do it with full devotion in your heart to God. In fact, uh, worship that doesn't engage your affections isn't really worthy worship at all. God doesn't want uh, your lips. He wants your heart. Think about what Jesus says when Jesus says, you honor me with your lips, but your hearts are far from him. He's condemning the religious leaders for just going through the motions. God doesn't want your motions. God wants your heart. And if you don't have your heart in it, you got to pray. Acknowledge this to God. He already knows it. God, infuse me with, with passion for you. It doesn't mean you're always clapping and shouting for joy. You might be weeping, but there should be affection that is drawn in as your heart uh, pours out to God. So we have to worship in uh, spirit. And then we have to worship in truth, which is rooted in biblical revelation. Any affection or emotion that's stirred, right, by false doctrine just leads to idolatry. It has to be in truth. God knows what he's talking about. He knows how he is to be worshiped. And he says it needs to be in truth. It needs to be in the entire counsel of my word. Take it all under consideration as you worship me. Worship is not primarily about feeling good, but being formed to what is true. Being formed to what is true. But what you'll notice is when you're formed to what is true, you tend to feel for God. It, it tends to come. And, and I'm really proud of our church. I, have, I just have to say, I have to, I have to boast in Fox Valley for a minute because some churches fall <clears throat> into a, a habit of being a church of truth that is scared of feelings and emotions and being, or being a church of spirit that doesn't want to uh, minimize the Holy Spirit and so that they don't acknowledge truth. And I think, do we do it perfectly? No, but Fox Valley Church, we try to help you exalt in a living God and preach the truth of the word of God. I'm proud of Fox Valley Church for this. And I wanna ask you, how are you coming to the corporate gathering of worship? When you gather as God's people, what's the pattern that, that, that you're bringing? Are you treating it as a time to remember your mighty God, to make sacrifices of, of heartfelt praise to God? Do you come with intensity remembering who you were before in Christ and what you have now in Christ? Some of the most powerful worshipers are people that were the biggest adulterers because they realize what God has rescued them from. And it's amazing to see people uh, respond in, in praise. Some of us went hard after our idols, right? I, I'm, I'm gonna confess, I, I wanna be honest, I always wanna be genuine because God knows my heart and I even prayed this morning like, God, don't, like I, I gotta be honest up on, on stage too. I'm, I'm accountable before you. And, and so one of my idols is college football. Right? We can chuckle. It's fine. We can chuckle. But it's true. It's an idol I have. And on Saturdays, I used to sit my fanny on the couch and watch football all day long. But then I had kids. Right? 
doesn't, it, it doesn't work. So that doesn't happen at all anymore, except when they go to bed. Guess what can happen from 7.30 to later than it should be? College football, catching up on all the games. So last night I had to confess, God, it's 11 o'clock and I'm wired because I just watched all this awesome football. I'm, I'm, just, I'm just wired. And so we have to uh, confess um, these idols before God. And I have to confess and acknowledge that I care deeply about football. And I get passionate about it. I get into it. I raise my voice. My wife says, hush, the kids are sleeping. And I get really engaged. And many of you in sports or other activities, maybe they're idols because they've become an ultimate thing. Uh, you get so into it. Could you get so into God and the story of your redemption? Could you get that into God? Here's a question. Will the joy of your redemption match the intensity of your rebellion? Will the joy of Jesus Christ dying for your sin match the intensity of whatever idol you have or you have had? Just think about the revival that would happen if all of us left with that kind of intensity for God today. Jesus has changed everything. And when we gather in corporate worship, we spur one another on to this truth. Josiah leads the people in true worship as they gather to remember God's faithfulness and worship him corporately. I want us to fast forward to verse 29 and 30. And this is to the end of our story. And some of you, this is just a couple paragraphs, but 13 years have passed. Uh, 13 years have gone by. We just flip a page of our Bible or we uh, read a little bit further and don't consider how much time has happened. We need to be more patient as God's people. But after Josiah restores uh, true worship and there's revival happening, all these people are choosing to follow after God. This is how it ends. Verse 29, in his days, Pharaoh Necho, king of Egypt, went up to the king of Assyria, to the river Euphrates. King Josiah went to meet him and Pharaoh Necho killed him at Megiddo as soon as he saw him. And his servants carried him dead in a chariot from Megiddo and brought him to Jerusalem and buried him in his own tomb. And the people of the land took Jehoahaz, the son of Josiah, and anointed him and made him king in his father's place. <clears throat> you can read in more detail about what happens here in Second Chronicles 35, but we don't have a lot of information. We don't know uh, why Josiah went up to fight Pharaoh Necho. But what we learn is it wasn't necessary. He didn't need to do it. And so arguably the greatest king in Israel who responded to God's word, he got rid of these idols. He replaced it uh, with true worship of God in the temple and Passover and sacrifices. He did all this for the people, yet he could not save them. They needed a better king. We needed a better king. We needed a savior. And so over 600 years later, Jesus Christ, our king, would come to this earth as a servant, and he would die as a sacrificial lamb for you and me, but he rose as a conquering lion, and he is now enthroned in heaven, and he is ruling do you know uh, that reality? That should encourage us. And now that has instituted a new covenant for you and for me. We're no longer part of the covenant of the law. Uh, covenants are God's. He's made these covenants throughout history to reveal his plan for his people to save them. They were all pointing in the direction of the new covenant, which you and I are now under. And we read about this in Jeremiah uh, chapter 30. 
1, verses 33 through 34. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. It's beautiful. Jesus has instituted a new covenant that is all about inward transformation. God is writing something on your heart. We are right by God, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ. The lamb has been sacrificed for all. Amen? Amen. I want to invite the band out now, and because I want them to participate in in what we're going to do. We're going to have a commitment together. We have the opportunity to make a commitment together as a church family. And while we think about what we are, are choosing and going to do for God, I just want to remind us that God has said a lot about what he's going to do. A covenant was two ways. And so here's just one of the many amazing things that God has done for you. It comes in John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them He is the one who loves me. Let me just pause there. My commands. What's the greatest commandment? What does Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. I teach our kids that in the car on the way to preschool. It's beautiful to hear him say it. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets are fulfilled by these. Whoever has my command and keeps them, loving me and loving my children, he is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and show myself to him. God tells us that he loves us, right? And God tells us that he shows himself to us. So let's remember that. God never lets down on his side of the bargain. Let's stand, and we're going to have this commitment, and we're going to read it out loud. But only say it out loud if you are choosing to believe it, to wholeheartedly go after it. But for those of you who are, let's boldly state this. I mean, I want to hear some vocals from your voices as we state this to to the Lord and together. Ready? We commit to being a church that loves God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We will also love our neighbor as ourselves, both within our church and community and around the world. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, we will live a life of repentance, removing idols, and practicing true worship of God. We will stand on the gospel of Jesus Christ for our salvation and live in obedience to tell and show others the story of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Father, God, we rejoice in you. We proclaim these truths to you. Would it be true, not just on our lips, but in our hearts, would our devotion be to a good, holy, loving God? And would we as a church make a difference living for what matters, seeing revival happen in our own hearts in our own church, and our own community, and maybe even God, if you want to be so bold around the entire 
world. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people stated, amen, amen. Hey, let's stay standing as we worship God, reminding ourselves what we believe is true.